Amen. I love the the depth of the song that we just sang. Um, what an amazing truth uh, to read those words and to know uh, what God's word tells us in regards to the purpose of Christ coming, the reason Christ came. Um, just so much truth in that song, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, this morning, um, it is so good to be back together, as Pastor Greg already said, to be able to gather in person is always uh, just such a great encouragement. And uh, I pray that it's been that for you already this morning in conversations and whatnot with each other. The idea, really, that kind of was drawn out from the passage. Um, just in the morning, I try to spend time, as many of us do, just reading God's Word. And usually what I do is I will... Um, if I'm not doing a devotion, or even if I'm doing a different devotion, a Bible study, um, I still try to, uh, we'll take an Old Testament and a New Testament book and kind of read through them in the mornings and then kind of alternate. Um, there's real no rhyme or reason. I know some people are like, you know, have a schedule, a Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in a year, and those are great, those are good. Um, for me, it's kind of more just a little more fluid than that, I guess. I just kind of feel, okay, I've read this Old Testament book and I'll read this New Testament book and then I just go chapter by chapter. And then I have a journal little thing. I don't journal very well. Uh, is anyone a really good journaler? Like you love writing and you're just good at it. You enjoy it. Okay, hand. How many struggle with journaling and writing and putting your thoughts on paper? Okay. Um, I don't have a, so much a hard time putting my thoughts on paper, but I'm not very, I wasn't very disciplined for a long time of just writing things down. And so I find just having a notebook next to the word of God has just really helped me to kind of focusing on the text. And so I've been reading through Job. Um, this is the Old Testament book that I've been reading through the last so many mornings. And there was a verse in uh, one of the chapters that, that jumped out to me. Now, I want to kind of give you a heads up. We're not going to do a study through Job. This isn't an in-depth study through the entire book of Job. We're really going to just kind of reference the story of Job, reference the idea of what we're talking about, and then this verse. But this verse, I made some notes real quick on the paper and I kept reading. But I, all week, this verse just kept coming back to my mind, kept coming back to my mind. And it just really, in a sense of reminding me and, and directing me, really following up even what we talked about last week with enduring and keep going and moving in the direction that God has called us to with wisdom as we've been covering through the month of January. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're really going to kind of just go to Job in just a moment. We're going to look at a verse and then we're going to kind of speak a little bit to the idea of what Job is dealing with. And then we're going to jump into how can that apply to our lives today. And so again, as I was reading through Job, I was greatly encouraged by a simple verse. And as I was looking, thinking about that verse and studying on that verse, a statement on one of my commentaries jumped out to me. And it's really the title of the message this morning. That God always writes the last chapter. That God always writes the last chapter. And so I just was so encouraged by that truth this week. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but sometimes we get in our world, we get in our, our eyes on the things of the world, and we start forgetting that there is a God who has purpose in all of this. There's a God who is working in all of this. There's a God who is ordaining things to happen and moving things in a direction. And he will be and is being glorified because of these things. And I know it's hard to, to dwell on that. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our daily lives, but we have to step back from time to time and just remember that God always writes the last chapter so we're going to be in Job chapter 8, but before we get there, before we get to Job chapter 8, I want to give you a little background here. Now, many of you have probably read the, the book of Job. If you haven't read the book of Job or the book of Job, depending on your pronunciation, 
It's not Psalms, it's Psalms, right? If you've, if you've read through it, or if you haven't read through it, you've at least heard the story of Job. And Job is a man that went through some crazy, difficult things. The book of Job is believed to be the oldest written book in the Bible. It's not obviously the oldest in chronologi- chronologically, but it is the oldest written book. It is believed that Job lived somewhere between, sometime between 2100 and 1700 B.C., and so Job, the story of Job is very old. Most likely Job lived in the time of the patriarchs. And we see that things in the book that give us an idea that he was kind of the priest or the one that proceeded to go before God for his family, prayed for his family, did things like that for his family. He was kind of the spiritual representative of his family. The book of Job is also a heart-wrenching story about a man that loses everything and unknown to him, Because God allowed Satan to afflict him. Throughout the story, really the majority of the text, Job's three friends come along and give Job advice on how to handle the difficulties that he's going through. Job responds and the back and forth goes on and on and on. In all honesty, chapter 4 through really the end of chapter 31 of the book of Job are just these back and forths. It's a friend will make some statements, make some comments for a chapter or two. Then Job responds to that for a chapter or two, and it just goes back and forth. And the whole kind of crux of the book is basically Job's friends show up. And if you know the story, initially Job loses everything. And then his friends show up, they sit with him, right? He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. His wife is still there. And I need to say this because I've heard preachers preach on this and it just drives me crazy when I hear someone say something like this. They'll say something like, you know, the only thing that Job had left was a wife who was cantankerous and said, why don't you curse God and die? And it's almost like we put all this, you know, we make a joke out of, well, his wife wasn't any help. Do you realize that everything Job went through, Job's wife went through, minus the boils and the physical things? Do you realize that his wife was enduring all the same stuff minus the physical elements? And so before we get too high and mighty, before we get too judgmental of Job's wife and say, how could she have said, why don't you curse God and die? Why don't we pause, step back, and think about some of the difficult situations we've gone through and thought, well, we didn't verbalize it, but in our hearts, we wanted to curse God and die. And so I have to pause there and make that reference because I just think it's irritating <laughs> when, when, when I hear a preacher will say something like that, almost picking at or mocking Job's wife. Again, forgetting that Job didn't go through this stuff alone. So his friends show up and he sits with them for a few uh, days. They're just sitting and they're weeping with him. They're just mourning with him. And they were doing fine until they opened their mouth. Now, there's a time for giving wisdom. There's a time for giving advice. There's a time for giving counsel. But if you've not been invited into that situation, if you've not been invited into that influence, please don't assume that you know best. Please don't assume that obviously if they would just listen to you, everything would be fine. Now I know you're sitting there thinking, who would ever do such a thing? If you've never had somebody cross that line or try to speak wisdom into your life that you didn't invite into that situation, you've never had that experience and you feel like you're pretty wise and you can offer a lot of help to people. Just a warning, you might be the person that is the one crossing the line. 
And I understand we give wisdom, we give counsel, but please don't assume that influence. Don't assume that somebody necessarily, even though what you're saying is true, is ready or able to hear what you're saying in that moment. Now, if somebody does invite you into that relationship, if somebody does invite you into a situation where they're going through something and they look at you and go, what do you think? Now you can speak truth in that, but please speak truth in love. Because what does Galatians 6 say? Hey, by the grace of God, there go I. Right? We go humbly. We go graciously. And so Job's friends begin to tell him, if you would just get your heart right, Job, if you would just confess this sin, Job, if you would just do what you need to do, you'd be fine. And the whole time, Job, while not sinless, he was still a fallen human being, did not sin in the way that he was dealing with that situation. But we get to the end, and there's even moments where Job says, you know, I I spoke rashly, I, I didn't use wisdom, those kind of things. But here we see this goes on and on and on. Well, in one of these conversations, Job chapter 8, look at verse 7. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can turn to page 391. 391. I feel like an eyelash is like stabbing me in the pupil right now. Do you ever have that? What in the world? Okay. If I just close my left eye and just start looking, I'm not winking at anybody. Okay, just trying not to, my eyes trying to water right now. All right, Roman, or Rome, Job chapter 8, Job chapter 8, look at verse 7. So Bildad is speaking here, and he's given his kind of answer to Job's response. He's telling Job, and again, I believe these guys, I think they had good intentions. They're his friends. I really think they had good intentions, but we're going to find out at the end of the book if you continue to read through the book of Job, you're going to find out that, that God rebukes and corrects them. And it's Job that ends up having to pray or being asked to pray for them. So it's a, a powerful turn in the, in the story. This is also considered one of the greatest literary works uh, dealing with the human suffering, that element, God in suffering, Satan involved in the suffering. So it's, it's a highly respected work, not only in Christian or biblical circles, but even in, in literary circles. So Job chapter 8, look at verse 7. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. And that was the verse that when I was reading one morning, I just jotted that down. And I just thought, Lord, what an amazing truth. Not just in the life of Job. Not just in the physical life, but in a spiritual sense. And I want to unpack that this morning. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us his wisdom. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is the the guiding light that we have before us, the lamp unto our feet. And Lord, I pray that as we go through your word this morning, that you would be our focal point. That you would be the one that we would look to for guidance and wisdom. That you would be the one that would give us direction Lord, may we know that no matter what we see or experience in this life, that you are writing and have written the last chapter. That you know the end from the beginning. And that we, as your sons and daughters, can trust in your great, gracious, providential, loving hand as you guide us home. Lord, I couldn't have asked 
Again, Lord, you just blow me away. I couldn't have asked for a better time of worship this morning to get our hearts and minds ready for this topic and this sermon. Lord, the fact that you laid that song on Andrew's heart, that someday soon we're going to make it home. Lord, you are so good in how you work these things together. So thank you for glorifying your name. Thank you for glorifying your purpose this morning. I pray that we would just be responsive to what you have for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Bildad, which again, if you're looking for a child's name, going to have a child soon, Bildad, not a horrible choice. Bildad made this comment. Now, what he said was true, but it's pretty, pretty possible or pretty much assumed that he was unaware of really what he was even saying. And it's true that through Bildad, God actually prophesies of how God is going to bless Job and actually restore Job and all that he lost twofold, double what he lost. God is going to work in a great way to restore Job at the end of this story, as many of you have read or studied. Now, I want to be careful here. I am not saying if we go through a time of suffering and and trials in this world that we will have physical blessings later on. That if you lose your job, you're going to get a job that pays you twice as much. That is not what I'm saying. I know that gets preached a lot. And maybe you've heard this said, you know, well, people will say, well, maybe not even said, but depicted. I think Pastor Greg and I were talking about this a while ago in the office. You know, it's the image of a girl holding a small teddy bear and Jesus, as we depict him to be standing in front of her. And he's bent over and he's asking her for the little teddy bear. But behind his back, he's got like a giant carnival, ridiculous, never going to use practically teddy bear. I'm not going to ask if anyone has one of those on your bed right now or in your bedroom. I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about? This those giant oversized teddy bears. And Jesus is saying to the little girl, would you give me that? Would you give me that? And she says, no, I, I don't want to give you this. And he says, but I have something greater. I have something better. And he's got this giant teddy bear behind his back. Boy, that'll, that'll preach. That'll preach. I'll get some amens in churches. Only problem is it's not very biblical. Yes, sometimes when we lay down and sacrifice and lay everything before the Lord and we go through times of seasons or difficulties or trials, he will bless in ways that we can't imagine physically. But other times you give him the teddy bear and all you get is him. There's no teddy bear. There's no bigger teddy bear. There's no better teddy bear. Because Job had to learn something. Relationship with the Lord was enough. Isn't it amazing that Job understands this, right? Had everything, lost everything, and in the process realized God was enough. Solomon gains everything, wastes his money on everything, tries everything, lives for everything, and realizes God is enough. And that those are kind of the bookends of the wisdom section of the Old Testament thing. If you don't have Christ, you don't have enough. But if you have Jesus, you have all you'll ever need. And so I I love this verse here because, again, it's not, we're not, don't just think physical. And I don't say that because God can't do things in the physical. I'm saying it because don't limit God to just that. Don't, don't kind of bring God down to just our understanding. But this is a true statement. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should be greatly increased. My desire this morning, again, is to not so much go through all the details of Job's life and conversations, but to draw our minds to this comment by Bildad. 
that we can expound on that for us today. So how do we start expounding on that? What is a simple way to look at that? That we might be encouraged to know that our end in Christ is so much greater than our beginning. That our end, our ladder, our end in Christ, so much better than where we started. And when we started, when we started walking with Christ, that excitement, that joy, we start getting taste of things of the glory of God and the word of God and the presence of God. But one day you will see him and you will be like him, not in divinity, but in his presence. You will enter into the joy of the Lord. See, your beginning was small. It was simple. But the end, so much greater. And so why does that matter? Why do we have to dwell on that? In this life, why do we need to know that? Why does that matter? Well, if you're taking notes and you can do that through the app, you can go into the media section, sermon notes, and then today's date. Why does it matter to know that? That our end is so much greater than our beginning, that where we're going matters. Well, the truth is, I think it matters because this life is hard. I think it matters because this life is hard as we see from the life of Job, but also from our own lives and the lives of others that we know. We, have all, we all have, rather, or will experience trials. We all have or will experience trials in this life. One thing I will draw our attention to from the book of Job is the fact that he was a righteous man, not a perfect man, who endured great trials. And while I know that most of us do not or have not gone through the level of degree of suffering that Job had to endure, we can all identify with his confusion and discouragement and the why. When you read Job's conversations, his laments before God, every time you turn around, it's, but, but God, I just don't get it. Like, I can't flee this pain. I can't flee this suffering. He actually says in one place, I could go down in a well. I could, I could go to the depths, but it'll be there. I can go to bed, but it'll be there. He actually says, I can't even sleep. It's just overwhelming me. And I think we would look at Job's life and say, man, I couldn't imagine losing all that Job lost. And when you read when he lost it, it was one after the other, after the other. Like one of the servants wasn't even done speaking before the next person Job said, whoa, 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 let me tell you what just happened. And we read that and go, I don't know what I would do if I had to go through that. You don't have to go through what Job went through to understand the confusion and discouragement and the struggle of going through some difficult things. We can all identify with that. We've all gone through something and we've prayed, God, why? Why this? Why now? Why like that? Job felt alone. His friends were accusing him of sin. His wife, again, out of grief, was telling him to curse God and die. He was consumed with his own pain and to the point where he says that there is no escape from it in this life. I just want to die. Now, he says he wants to die basically by saying, I wish I was never born, which is basically saying I want to die. I wish I never lived. Later on, he says, well, that was rash. I, I spoke too rashly. But then a chapter or two later, he says, by the way, I cursed the day of my birth. And we can identify with that, that ebb and flow, that up and down, that roller coaster of emotion that we all go through. You see, when you are going through something, we have this temptation, this desire to, to either look to others and vent and try to figure it out or we have this desire to call out to God and just lay bare before him. And my encouragement to you is call out to him. Call out to him. 
It's, it's totally fine to go to friends or family members and, and look for wisdom and insight and prayer. To just know that they're there for you. That's all good. But the first place we need to go is cry out to God and say, God, I don't understand. I just, I just need you. I just don't know what's going on. You see, we hesitate sometimes as Christians to do that because we think it's not very Christ-like or very Christian to, to call out to God or vent to God or get mad at God or get upset with God. But the Bible is filled with examples of great men and women of God doing exactly that. Yes, reverently, when you read Job, he never disrespects God. He never dishonors God. But he does tell God, God, more or less, I don't get what you're doing. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so here we see an example that we can cry out to him because this life is hard. And so many people are going through so many things. And it's okay to acknowledge it and say it's difficult. We will all experience trials. But when we know where we're going, another way to say that is we have eternity on our mind. We all experience trials, but when we live with eternity in mind, trials of this life will be kept in their proper perspective. Trials of this life will be kept in perspective. This was Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What is Paul saying? With an eternal focus or an eternal mindset, yes, we go through some stuff in this world. Some of it are our own doing. I didn't think I'd get an amen on that one. Our own choices lead to some trials and some difficulties. But a lot of times you go through things because of the choices of other people. Not even choices that you made. Uh, we talk about this global prayer guide. So many of our brothers and sisters are going through things, things all over the world, not because of their choices, but because of the choices of their government, their leaders, this group or that group. They're just kind of caught up in it. And so as we go through these sufferings that we all go through, I love what Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, that's an ongoing present act. He's not saying we used to suffer or we might suffer again. He says, no, right now, presently, you're going through it. Says they're not worth comparing. There's no comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us. The word present in Romans 8.18 is so encouraging because Paul is comparing a soon passing occasion with an eternal future. That word present there, I love what one commentary said, a soon passing occasion with the eternal future. Yeah, it's difficult and it's tough, but it's passing. It's, it's not only passing, it's soon it's going to pass off. Now, does that make it easier when you're in it? Not necessarily. But with an eternal focus, we can at least have the right perspective on this suffering and we can have that suffering not overtake us. We can still keep our eyes on him. I love what one commentary said in studying for this. The idea of suffering in this life, this is what the author said. True, we must suffer with Christ if we would partake of his glory. But what of that? For if such sufferings are set over against the coming glory, they sink into significance. Insignificance, sorry. For if such sufferings are set over against the coming glory, they sink into insignificance. 
And if we keep the glory of the Lord on our minds, the heavens that are awaiting us, the presence of God with us, these sufferings, yes, they're real and they, they hurt and we go through them. But when compared with the glory to come, because our end is so much greater than our beginning, all of a sudden they start to fade away. They don't even necessarily change, but our perspective changes. Now, I want to add, as I was preparing for this sermon, something else came to my mind in, in reading a totally different work. I want to add that not only will we face trials in this life for Christ, it is to God's glory and our blessing that we go through difficult times in this life. Now, I know that it's hard for us to understand that reality. But scripture is filled with the reality of growth in Christ coming in suffering for Christ, which brings joy. That's hard for us. We talked about the sufferings and we don't like that and we know that it's soon passing away and it is in relation to eternity. But do you know that the Bible is filled with verse after verse after verse, especially the New Testament, about not only how suffering will happen and we will go through persecution, but that suffering actually is used by God to grow us and to shape us and form us. You've heard people say it. They've learned more of God's grace, goodness, and love in times of difficulty than in times of blessing. See, it's not just, oh, Lord, I know i got to get through this trial. I'm so glad you're with me in this struggle. And he is. But don't look at it as, oh, i just got to get through. Look at it as though, thank you, Lord, for giving me this trial. Now, I know that's hard. Lord, thank you for letting me go through this season of suffering because I know that you're using it for your glory and to conform me to the image of Christ. What does Peter say? 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Now, this one's not in the notes. I kind of added this in again after the, we kind of built the notes out for the app. But if you want to jot it down, I encourage you to do so. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, can I just say again, I know I say it a lot, but man, I love that the word of God addresses our identity before it tells us this or that thing. You are not. Understand me now. We have all sinned. We will be tempted to sin and we may sin again. And we are saved by grace. But your identity in Christ is not a sinner saved by grace. Your identity in Christ is a beloved son and daughter of God. The Bible says you are a saint. Oh, preacher, but I don't live like a saint. That's not what we're talking about. We all are being conformed to image of Christ. We shall be repenting and turning from sin and trusting in him. And we understand that we will not be fully sinless in the flesh until we see Jesus face to face. I know what we mean when we say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. But the Bible, the New Testament, sure doesn't call us sinners saved by grace. Peter says, you're beloved. You're beloved. It says, beloved. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. Man, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. In verse 12, chapter 4, 1 Peter, he tells us straight up, you're going to have fiery trials that come against you. There's going to be persecutions that come against you. Don't be shocked by these things. Don't think it's strange. It's not strange. It's, it's brought into your life. It's in your life for a purpose. What is that purpose? 
so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. He says, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. You're taking part in the sufferings of Christ. By the way, did Christ suffer? Greater than we'll ever imagine. But did God abandon Christ and deny Christ? And did Christ cease to be favored by God? And all these other things we hear that if you go through suffering and you don't have the big checkbook, you don't have the promotion, you don't have this, it's just a lack of faith, you don't have the favor of God on your life, that's nonsense and not biblical. No, Christ suffered because it was the will of God that he suffer. And he joyfully Hebrews tells us he joyfully submitted to that suffering. Why? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy? You and I. Salvation. John 14, that where I am, there you may be also. Peter says you're going to suffer for Christ, but it's okay. Because when his glory shall be revealed, you will be glad also with exceeding joy. Rejoice. Be glad, exceeding joy. How should we approach trials in this life? With our heads down, feeling defeated? No, we approach them with joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's the man that wrote that, was in prison, beaten, shipwrecked, lost all, according to his own testimony for the cause of Christ. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. So why does it matter to know our end is so much greater than our beginning? Because life is hard and trials are kept in their perspective. As well as when we keep our end in mind, eternity focus, we will now realize our life matters. Our life matters. You see, because life is hard and because our life now matters. When I keep eternity in mind, my life has greater purpose. This side of heaven. The truth is we only get one life. Don't waste it. We only get one life. Don't waste it. Now, I know that's not a profound statement. I don't think anyone in here thinks they're a cat and they're going to get nine lives. We all know we get one life. But if we're being honest for a moment, don't raise your hand. Don't say amen. Don't nod at me. I'll try not to even look at anybody. (laughs) Preach. Preach. If we're being honest... As a follower of Christ, do we live every day with eternity in mind? I mean, do we really live that way? Because I think if we were honest, we would say, man, I want to. I start every day trying to, but I think we'd all admit we, we don't live every day with eternity in mind. Because I think it would change how we live. You see, it's not a profound statement. You only get one life, don't waste it. But it is a truth that we must grasp. We only get one life. There's no do-over. There's no do-over. This is it. When you leave this world and you stand before him, you will give an account, not unto salvation. That is settled in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord that it is. But we will give an account for the things we did for Christ. We will not lose our salvation if we didn't do enough because we don't do anything to get our salvation. But we stand before him and we glorify him and we praise him for the life that he gave us and we want our lives to reflect his glory. Knowing that one day we will stand before Christ, our Savior, the one that died for us, rescued us from the power and penalty of sin, gifted us with eternal life, brings meaning 
to our life. It is an eternal purpose. Now, I mentioned this yesterday at the men's prayer meeting. We were speaking about a part of this. As I mentioned them yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast, to be truly great for Christ in this life. Listen to me now. When we talk about not wasting your life, we think of a lot of different things. We think of a lot of things that will give our life purpose and value. And most of us, we've been tainted by the world and we think worldly in this way. Romans 12, 1 and 2, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how are we conformed to the world? It has nothing to do with what you wear, unless we're speaking about modesty. It has everything to do with thinking about your life, your body, your existence, and conforming it to the image of Christ, putting it under the will of God. And if you wake up in the morning and your purpose for living is driven by what drives the world, you are being conformed to the world. Your mind's not being transformed and renewed. If you think the end of your life amounts to what's in your bank account, you're wasting your life. Because that is not at all how God's scale works. I shared it yesterday, but I want to share it again. It does not require to be great for God in this life. does not require you to be wealthy. It does not require you to have a degree from a prestigious university like U of M, not like that school down south. I had to put it in there. I, had to, I was writing and I was like, I got to It just fits. It flows off the tongue. I don't even, it's just the school down south, by the way. All that is required, seriously, nothing's wrong with having a, a job that makes a lot of money. Nothing's wrong with having a great degree from a great school. I have a Bible degree or a college degree. Nothing's wrong with that. But those things in and of themselves do not intrinsically give value to your life. You see, if you want to be great for Christ, it doesn't require, as John Piper says in a very famous sermon preached in 2000, it doesn't require you to have a great knowledge of a great many things. It requires you to be gripped by a few great truths. It requires that we are gripped by a few great truths. Not that we are great in all these things. Not that we have great knowledge in all these things. Not that we have all these great possessions. It's that we've been gripped by a few great truths. So what are those key things which we must be gripped by to have an impactful life for Christ? Well, again, I'm going to Read through these quickly, but if you want a copy of the notes, again, it might be a little bit to write down. Just let me know. First thing we want to identify is that God has a purpose in all things to reveal his glory. God has a purpose in all things to reveal his glory. If we want to be great for Christ, we have to be gripped by that truth. That God has a purpose in all things to reveal his glory. Secondly, and these are just simple thoughts. You can reword these, you can say these in different ways, but just as I kind of was thinking through these things. He chose you to be the vessel in which he has proclaimed his grace and glory. That in Christ, you are a vessel that he is using to proclaim his grace and his glory. And number three, we can live for his glory by knowing him and making him known. If you want your life in Christ to have an eternal, durable, lasting impact, being gripped by those simple, great truths will radically change how you live your life. 
that God has a purpose in all things to reveal his glory. He chose you and I through Christ to be the vessel in which he has proclaimed his grace and glory, and we can live for his glory by knowing him and making him known. When we are truly overwhelmed with these simple and yet profound truths, our lives will leave a lasting and eternal impact for Christ. So where does that lead us then? It leads us to change the cultural narrative. To change the cultural narrative. Go with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 853. James chapter 4. Verse 13. James chapter 4 and verse 13. Love hearing pages of God's word turn. It's such a blessing. Nothing against those that are scrolling. I'm just, it's cool to hear. Verse 13. Go to now. You that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. For that we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. What is the, the good there in the last verse? It says, to him that knoweth to doeth good and doeth it not, it is sin. I, I would suggest, based on the context, it's that mindset of what he just told us in verse 15. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. We apply verse 17 to all kinds of things. But in the context, it seems as though James is suggesting if you choose to boast in your own gain, boast in your own stuff, not, you know, think about the Lord's will, not engage the mindset to say, what does the Lord have us? But we just live kind of, I'm just going to do this and do that for my gain and my wealth and my pleasure. He says, that's not good. That would actually be sin. Because good is, no, Lord, if you will. We will do this or that. Lord, I'm going to invest my life for the things of Christ, not waste my life on the things of self. You see, our culture is fixated on this life and this life only, which makes sense. Our culture is fixated on this life and this life only, which makes sense. It fits. If they don't have any view of God or view of heaven, then that's going to be where they find their joy and their peace and their enjoyment. There's no consideration for the eternity to come, which leads, now hear me now, which leads to raising children that only think in temporal terms. If we don't, as followers of Christ, change the cultural narrative and we allow the culture to dictate how we live, how we think, and then we transmit that down to our children or grandchildren, our children will think in temporal terms, momentary, this life terms. What does that look like? Well, we'll think things like this. What gives me the best life now? How can I make the most money in this life? How can I have all that I want in this life? How can I live as comfortably and as uh, a convenience-driven possible in this life? 
when we are gripped by those great truths summarized simply as Christ is enough for me, we will live in a way and we will raise our children and grandchildren to think first of what would God have me to do in this life, not what provides me the most pleasure in this life. We need to think that way. Our children need to be raised to think that way. Our grandchildren need to think that that way as followers of Christ. Because if we don't train them to think that way, they're just going to think with this world in mind. And then they'll throw Jesus on the side. Well, my life is predominantly about me, my comfort, my pleasure, my will. But I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll give Jesus his day. God help us if that's what we think. God help us that that's what we're allowing to drive our homes and our minds as followers of Christ. Now, if you're here today and you would say, but I'm not a follower of Christ, preacher, and I don't get what you're saying. I understand that. Then my first plea to you is receive Christ as your Lord and personal Savior and discover that there is so much more than just this life. And that one day you will stand before him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, either unto Savior or unto judge, unto condemnation. This is your choice. He's given you breath in your lungs right now. I said it earlier. Yesterday we had that memorial service. I'm greatly blessed to be able to do funerals, memorial services, homegoings, because it constantly keeps me in a sober place of mind to realize that every single day matters. Every breath matters. What does he say in James 4? Don't you know? You have no idea what tomorrow holds. Man, I pray it's not the case. But someone here tonight, you may go home tonight, go to bed and never wake up. And so let me ask you, when you stand before God in that next moment, are you in Christ or not in Christ? Because if you're not in Christ, the good works, not going to work. The church, not going to work. The good person, not going to work. There'll only be one conclusion. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But man, if we're in Christ... And that next breath comes, we are ushered into the joy and presence of the Lord. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. When we live with eternity in mind, we will see this life as a blessing to be known by God and to make him known. Yes, that may be experiencing blessings as the world defines blessings. But this also may mean spending 50 years of your life living in relative poverty in a foreign land, preaching the gospel to people that have never heard. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17 says, this is a beautiful life. And I can't help but think about Ron and Debbie Abrams. Retired from missions here. I believe it was in early 21 Spent decades, decades. Most of you, if you went on Time magazine or you went online and you tried to find out, you wouldn't read any stories about them. There's no interviews by them. They're not famous in the world's eyes. But they spent decades living in a tribe in Senegal, West Africa, preaching the gospel. Do you know that they got there? No written language of that people group, so there's no Bible Do you know it took them 20 years to see their first person come to Christ? And in that 20 years, churches here in the States, because there was no fruit, started dropping support of them? Obviously, you're not doing something right if we're not seeing the converts. Never mind, there's no Bible, no written language, no understanding of God, Jesus Christ, sin, salvation. 
And they dedicated their lives to the ministry of Christ. They sacrificed everything to spend their lives, their adult lives, primarily in this one tribe, planning a church, preaching the gospel. Do you know that when Ron and Debbie Abram retired, that in now, among the Buddhic people, there's a thriving, growing church. There's actually, and I grabbed it out of my office because I wanted you to be able to see it. It'll be up front here. There's a translated New Testament. Decades of work spent. 20 years before your first convert. And now they come home. They'll go to Walmart. Nobody knows who they are. Well, maybe if it's a local Walmart because everybody knows everybody at Walmart. No, seriously, you bump into everybody at Walmart. What's up with that? But nobody knows these guys. And somebody might look at that and go, man, they had such potential. The things they could have done, the money they could have made, intelligent, just great people. Man, what a tragedy. No, no, I'll tell you a tragedy. To live your entire life focused on self. To think that it's about your bank account instead of your investment for Christ. That your goal is to retire young and live as comfortably as possible for the last 20, 25 years of your life so that you can just take it easy. That's a tragedy. Man, what is God leading you in? How can you invest your life for Christ? Our beginnings may have been small and mediocre. Nothing of grand significance. Our lives currently are not making any national headlines or seemingly a global impact whatsoever. However, I want you to know that in Christ, your end is so much greater than your beginning. One day we will see him and we will be like him. So all I'm encouraging us to do is live with that in mind. An eternal focus, and that will change how we live, how we raise our children, how we treat our spouse. You want to have a good, healthy, Christ-like marriage? Stop thinking about just right now. What makes you happy? What makes you feel good? What makes you have joy? Think with eternity in mind. Am I helping my spouse to be fully prepared for the day that they see Jesus Christ? How would I serve my wife or my husband today like Christ would serve? Man, arguments would start to stop. Bickering would stop. I've said it before. When you walk in your house, if you think you're the rock star that needs to be served and worshipped, you've got another thing coming. But when you walk in your house with that Christ-like attitude and you look for a way to serve the other person, man, that's a beautiful relationship. And it's the picture, Ephesians 5 says, of Christ's love for the church. You see, we keep eternity focused because it changes how we live our lives. It gives our lives purpose and meaning. And when life is difficult, we keep it in perspective because we know our end is so much greater than our beginning. How can we know that? Because the beauty of this, God writing the last chapter is, no matter what happens as a follower of Christ in this life, the gospel will carry you home. The gospel is carrying you home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and grace in our life. And Lord, we pray, Lord, I know this is a sermon that can be weighty causes us to really evaluate some things, Lord. I know that over the last couple of weeks as I've been thinking on some of these things, Lord, and even this last week preparing this message, Lord, it just draws me to a sober thinking to realize that 
that this life is, is short, this side of heaven. And so, Father, I pray that if you, as you've encouraged me and challenged and even convicted me, Lord, to look at my own life and ask the question of how am I living with eternity in mind? Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that every morning your mercies are new to be enjoyed and received and lived in by your children. Lord, I think about other parents here today, moms and dad, or maybe even grandparents that are raising children in a world that is pushing on them one way to think. It's about self. Treasure yourself. Live for self. Do what makes you happy. And Lord, I know there's things in this life that we can enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying things that you've given to us. We can enjoy the blessings and we can enjoy things that you give to us through this world. And there's nothing wrong with that. But not at the cost of living for you. Not at the cost of being willing to lay it all down. It's the gospel that carries us home. It's the gospel that gives us the love and the joy and the peace that we have in times of suffering. It's the gospel that gives us purpose. So I thank you for the example of so many like the Abrams willing to do whatever was needed so that your word would go forth. What a beautiful life. And Lord, I, I, they're still serving you. I know we say they're retired, but Lord, they're still serving you. They're still active in ministry. So Lord, I pray you'd lead us and guide us. And Father, I pray above all things, if there's anyone here this morning that has not received you as their personal Lord and Savior, I don't know what their reasons are for not following you. I don't know what questions they have. I pray they would ask those questions, but Lord, I pray that you would just pierce their heart by the working of your spirit. They would know that their sin desires or deserves a consequence and that cost, that consequence is a place of hell. But if they would just turn from their sins and trust in Christ, they can be forgiven and given eternal life. So Father, you do the work that only you can do. Draw to repentance those that want to call out to you, Lord, that are feeling that pull. And Father, help us to live for you, knowing our end is so much greater than our beginning. Thank you for this, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we spend some time in prayer? Response. How is God leading you? You only have one life. How are you investing in the cause of Christ? Maybe you'd come and pray and say, Lord, give me wisdom in this that I would think with eternity in mind. As a mom and dad, maybe you want to come and pray for your children. You'd raise them up in the Lord that they'd keep focused on the Lord. Whatever it is, would you respond as God moves?